Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. Alex, so I've got a funny question for you. You're a professional athlete that doesn't play on a team or compete in tournaments. Like, how does one actually go about being a professional climber? So in general, I think the path to becoming a professional climber basically starts with low-level sponsorship from various brands. At least this is the path that I took. Uh, where a few different climbing-specific companies will offer you free product and maybe a little bit of money to to wear their gear, you know, or use use their hardware or whatever. From there, if you're good, if if you're a good athlete, you know, if you represent the brand well, whatever, uh, then they'll bring you on um, for like a salary or a stipend or something, and you'll start actually making a living from those companies. Typically, most professional climbers are sponsored in every product category. So say apparel, which, uh, you know, your clothing sponsor is normally the most money you can make because apparel uh, makes the most money of any of the companies. You know, if you think about it, a clothing company makes a lot more money than than a climbing hardware company. Um, but you typically get sponsored in each category. So say apparel, footwear, hardware, maybe ropes and things like that. Maybe some, you know, sort of side specialty categories like, I mean, nowadays, there are tons of people making money off like CBD companies and things like that, which I think is not that cool. But um, if you're really lucky, you might get sponsored by a, by a bank company or something like that. Then beyond that, you're always trying to make money on the side by, say, writing articles, participating in film projects, uh, doing the occasional uh, professional speaking event, things like that. And I think at the beginning as a professional climber, you're mostly appearing at, at very climbing specific events like showing up at a real rock showing for your sponsors or uh, or speaking for a climbing club at a university things like that um, as you become a more professional climber you wind up doing corporate speaking and you know as as the whole career <laughs> as as the art goes i mean it basically starts getting more and more mainstream where you potentially get sponsored by bigger brands that uh that are part of the real world Somebody like Uli Steck, who is sponsored by by the equivalent of Home Depot in Switzerland. There's no set path to being a professional outdoor athlete because so much of it depends on your own personal strength, strengths and weaknesses and, and what you like to do. So a lot of it is just finding, you know, navigating your own way through this whole wild ecosystem and finding enough small pots of money that you can actually make a living. Like, do you treat this like, like owning a business, like where you almost develop different revenue streams, you know, you dial in the brand. I imagine you kind of have to be pretty critical about how you spend your time. Yeah. So this is where I start to have all kinds of personal feelings about it, because you're right that if you want to make a living as a professional athlete in the outdoor world, you do have to treat it a little bit like a business. And, you know, I've read some books about, you know, creating your brand and marketing your brand and all that, you know, personal brand and, and all those kinds of things. And, you know, yeah, that's all true to an extent. But I think, if you want to be a professional climber, sending always has to come first. You know, it's like personal brand stuff aside, business stuff aside. If you want to be a professional athlete, sending hard should be your number one priority. And not necessarily the hardest grades, but at least contributing to the climbing world in a meaningful way. You know, doing things that haven't been done before, doing things in better style, doing, you know, basically doing difficult climbs should always be the priority. Keep making a contribution in some way, whether that's new routes or mentorship or whatever else. But you just keep 
keep contributing to the sport in some way. You know, like how do your sponsors evaluate whether you've done, like you've held up your end of the bargain? Because like, it's not like there's a game you need to play in or um, you need to show up for practice or something like that. My contract with the North Face is for a certain number of days, but realistically, I don't think I've, I've done, you know, that many days for them showing up at the office, but I do a lot of mainstream media in, in which I'm wearing North Face products. And so you know, I think that they're pretty good about recognizing that if I if I appear on Good Morning America, let's say, wearing a North Face uh, hoodie, you know, that is just as useful for them as as me going to the office and, and chatting with the equipment designers about how to make a better backpack. Because re- realistically, I'm not even that good at the design stuff. Because I'm just like, yeah, it's a backpack. It works. It's great. Love it. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm very bad at that. And so I try to contribute in other ways. Like by by showing up at the freaking Oscars in a North Face tux, you know, you're like, well, that certainly counts as an athlete day. <laughs> um, that's an all time athlete day, I feel like. Too. <laughs> and and really, I, I I think I could have counted that as two days since the after party goes through the whole the whole night. You know, uh, I I mean, I think that the key to all these things is just trying to learn as much as you can as you go. You know, it's like because as a professional athlete, you have so many unusual opportunities thrown at you it's it's critical to actually learn from those opportunities and and to to build from them rather than just react to them all the time in the very first episode of climbing gold we interviewed legendary climber peter croft and in that interview he told us how he'd spend his winters digging ditches in his home in british columbia to pay for his time climbing in the summer at that moment in time Croft was amongst the very best climbers in the world. And there's nothing wrong with digging ditches, but it is a testament to how the business of climbing has changed. Across the country, climbing gyms are filled shoulder to shoulder on busy Tuesday nights. Mainstream media has caught on and begun presenting climbing in a credible way. Big budget advertisers that have nothing to do with climbing now see it as a valuable niche market to target. For athletes, it has meant an opportunity to make a living doing what they love. Those are the facts. How you feel about them is up to you. But here's another fact. Money will play a large role in the future of climbing. It seems strange to say, but we'd be naive if we didn't. Today we talk with two experts who have lived the business of sports. First, Rick Burton, professor at Syracuse University's David B. Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamics and former CMO for the U.S. Olympic Committee. After that, we'll talk with Jonathan Retzik, founder of Arxar Sports, an agent to many of climbing's biggest names. There's a version of the future where climbing walks into the same pitfalls of mainstream sports, and a version where we improve on the model. It all comes down to how we choose to do business. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. I wanted to work in sports as a famous sports broadcaster. And, and as I long joked, I had a face for radio and I had a voice for newspapers. So <laughs> I'm Rick Burton 
and I'm the David B. Falk Professor of Sport Management at Syracuse University. Rick has had a pretty wild career. He was the Chief Marketing Officer for the U.S. Olympic Committee. He was the Commissioner of the Australian Basketball League, and he's worked with a lot of major advertisers on some of the biggest NFL marketing campaigns. And I, I've been here at Syracuse for the last 12 years or so, um, corrupting the next generation of, of great sport management uh, executives. <laughs> I'm so interested. It's like, how many people want to work in sports management or sports marketing? Or It's massive and, and getting bigger and probably about two or 300 programs around the country. You got a fair number of young people that are like, dude, that sounds a lot better than, and then you fill in the thing. And if I fill it in, I'll make fun of somebody's major and then they'll be all offended. <laughs> yeah, classic. I think a lot of the students that come here want to work in sports and our attempt is to try and make sure they understand kind of all of the nuances of the sports industry. And in the old days in sports, it was that, you know, you had played it as a professional athlete and then your playing days were over and someone just kind of moved you into the front office and you might have helped with sales or you might have made appearances that could have been called marketing. And now you kind of have the professionalization or, or, or the monetization, you know, of, of sport is big business. And so now you've got to try and teach people the legal side of sport or the, um, you know, the marketing side, just all these different facets. And, and I think what we're seeing is people are, are really pretty fascinated about, could I have a career in climbing that didn't involve me having to do any climbing. Rick, when we've talked in the past, one of the elements you said that all mainstream sports share is is a is like a, a violence or like a threat of violence that that um, not so much like fighting in hockey, but but that there's like this risk in it or a potential for a big hit or like even even like a like a well hit home run is kind of violent in a way. Um, is that is that what makes it intriguing to us? We see the we see the things that we ourselves can't do or or wouldn't be willing to do, and, and I think that that gives us this aspirational piece that if I'm watching the NFL on Sunday, I may want to go outside and play football with my friends in the backyard, or you know I, I want to play catch and I want to imagine myself being good enough. But at some point, I'm not willing to make the sacrifice you know, to, to go to that next level because it starts to hurt. And, and, and in a lot of cases, people get eliminated because they can't throw a ball fast enough or, you know, they can't shoot a ball with someone guarding them. But when I watch it on TV, I, I, I see maybe both the beauty of the game and the excellence of the game. And When you were just talking about mainstream sports uh, requiring violence in some way, and not that you know, not that they necessarily require violence, but but there is sort of this fixation on on sports doing things that that the viewer would never necessarily do. I don't know I just thought about that a lot while filming Free Solo, because while we were filming Free Solo, I was like, this is this is modern blood sport. You know, like this is being a modern gladiator, basically, because people watch this because they're not sure if you're going to survive or not, and. And I, I thought a lot about that, par partially because I was watching this TV show called Spartacus that was all about gladiators. I was like binge watching this terrible show on my rest days, like while while soloing things for a camera. And I was like, this is this is being a modern gladiator. You know, it's like you're doing it just f for the masses to you know to witness something where they don't know what the outcome will be. 
Yeah, I, I I hate to agree with you, but I'm I'm gonna have to agree with you. I, I mean, I hate to agree with you because I hate for you to be right that that even what you did in Free Solo became Bloodsport or became you know Gladiators. Um, I, I would have loved to have told you that I was watching to see you know what handholds you used <laughs> or you know what kind of what kind of grabs you were attempting, but I think. You know, like a lot of people, it was, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe he's doing this. Didn't because of the the, the possibility of violence, if that didn't make a whole lot of people go, whoa, what do we got over here with climbing? Um, because and that's that's the part I hate to agree with you on, which is I, I just I wish we weren't that way. Um, you know, the, the old line, an old, you know, dead Greek poet. uh who said, you know, give them bread in the circus games, you know, and the circus games was, you know, the, the way in which you kept the mob at, at, at bay in, in times of famine was you gave them a little bit of bread and you brought out some gladiators to fight in front of them and you could distract them. And, and I think some part of the sports landscape is really about distracting us from our daily lives. With that, that's certainly the cynical take on mainstream sports. You know, I mean, NFL is just a keep the masses placated while while we we pillage the natural resources of the world and 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 burn it all down you know it's like i'm i'm with you and and yet you know i've made my living inside that that community and 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 i i'm i can't bite the hand that feeds me fully um but i but i think that these kinds of discussions are at least valuable as it relates to the climbing community because there's a quid pro quo or there's a trade off to, you know, let's become bigger and more popular and more famous. Um, but there's a cost that goes with it. You know, you were the chief marketing officer for the U.S. Olympic Olympic Committee. Um, what are your general thoughts on on how? Uh, the Olympics impact uh, you know these fringe sports the the newer sports that have been added this year climbing and surfing and um, skateboarding um, climbing now being in the Olympics it, it opens this this door for and I, I hate the phrase and I apologize for you know kind of being capitalistic but it opens this door for people thinking about how to monetize you know, either their excellence or their fame you suddenly start stop being maybe about the water or about the wall and and suddenly a big part of your life is involved with this monetization piece that was never in your mind when you started out i, I think for some people at least and suddenly it is um the the problem is is that i think in a lot of communities like surfing and climbing um the people who are involved they're not rebelling against the man but it, it's I surf because I love being one with the ocean. I'm not thinking about making the guys at Billabong wealthier. And, and you know, the people who made my board are not making boards because they're trying to get rich. There's, I mean, there's a quid pro quo of wanting to get paid for making a great surfboard. Uh, but I think the community is a lot more relaxed about it not being all about the money. And I think the difference with the traditional sports is that it is all about the money. And, you know, you think back to Tom Cruise in the movie Jerry Maguire and, and the whole catchphrase is show me the money. 
And it was laughable, and yet it was really accurate. I mean, is that accurate, though? Because I I would like to think that the young players of mainstream sports get into the sport for love of the game. You know, that people are playing basketball as kids because they love playing basketball. And then, you know, eventually it may become about the money or about the big contracts. But I would assume that you don't get great at any sport without loving the sport itself. You know, you're right, and I'm not going to say you're wrong, but I think with the dollar amounts that really have been visible in the traditional sports for the last 50 to 75 years, there are a lot of kids who grow up wanting to become a professional athlete because they've heard how much money their stars, you know, their, their favorite players are earning. So if Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, signs a deal that's worth half a billion dollars, um, and, and you're a kid growing up in South Central L.A. and you go, hey, I'd like to make that kind of money. I think you have to love the sport. You have to show that you can be good at the sport. But I think that early incentive may be, hey, I can become famous and make a lot of money. But I think that that's a, a relatively recent development uh, of the last 75 years uh, what a lot of us call the professionalization of sport. There was a time when people playing in the NFL or in Major League Baseball had day jobs in the offseason because playing Major League Baseball or in the NFL didn't pay enough to pay the bills. But gradually over the course of the last 75 years, it now is a full-time, all-the-time activity and, and I think a lot of the professional athletes are thinking, I'm only going to be in this game. Uh, you know, the average career for an NFL player is about three and a half to four years. And so the mindset becomes, I've got to make as much money as I can in the four years that I might play in the NFL. And, um, and I think, you know, these are sports that are pretty hard on the body when you've got to play that many games in that many Sundays or that many nights. That all makes me so grateful to be a rock climber. It's just all so much more relaxed. After the break, it gets dark. And then we talk 1990s romantic comedies. Sweet. What does a fringe sport like climbing need to, to gain mainstream traction? Traditionally, it's been, is it on TV? And, and I've known Nike people who have said, if it's not on TV, it doesn't exist. Um, that that's the way you develop a mass audience because those are the, that's the vehicle for uh, widespread visibility. These endorsements, this, this commerciality becomes really important to mainstream consumers saying, you know, who's this guy on the side of the McDonald's cup? Uh, and then someone said, oh, he, that's the climber, you know, and he did really well at the Olympics. He got a gold medal or she. And, and, and so all of a sudden, uh, more people are talking about climbing as, you know, maybe in your words or mine, a legitimate sport or a mainstream sport. That all 
makes me slightly sad. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, re- I really hope climbing doesn't go down that path. Though, on the one hand, you know, I mean, I guess that's just my personal opinion because if it's good for the competitors, like if they're able to make a better living, if, you know, if climbers are better able to support themselves, then, then I certainly don't begrudge them that. But at the same time, it would make me slightly sad to see climbing change in that way. Yeah, and I think that if you were to talk to old-time football and baseball players, they might tell you some variation of the same thing, that you know they remember the good old days when it wasn't all about endorsements or you know it wasn't about the money. It was for the love of the game. I think it's hard to commercialize outdoor climbing too heavily, but I do wonder with climbing being in the Olympics and, and with sort of the, the rise of indoor climbing, it just seems much more... Uh, exploitable you know like like it's more able to be commercialized in that way and i don't i don't know i think it will be exploitable and i and i think that's because there will be a number of forces and this may be kind of what you're kind of drilling down on which is there will be you know people paid to figure out how to exploit olympic climbing And at some level, it may start with the International Olympic Committee. They're going to want it to be a bigger, more popular part of their Olympic broadcasts. Um, It will involve the Climbing Federation. It will involve the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Uh, It will involve agents who represent climbers who compete in the Olympics and, and it will, you know, the network is going to start to figure out there's going to be someone going, hey, we had pretty good viewership during the, the minutes or the hours that we had climbing on during the Olympics. We need to get more of that. Somebody go look and see whether or not we can create an X game so we can put this on TV more often. And and so you're hoping maybe at, at a certain level that it's not going to get exploited. I can almost guarantee you that you know, on another level, there's a whole ton of people out there looking to exploit it. So from your perspective, when you look at a sport like climbing or skateboarding, should the end goal be televised competition? Like, should those sports transition into something that more closely resembles mainstream sports? You know, that it's an unfair question, Alex, because in, in some parts, it depends on, I guess, who's trying to make the money or who's trying to you know, make the sport bigger. And I don't know that there's a right answer because I think the community, the climbing community will be split. On one hand, it's bringing a lot of visibility and some people are starting to be able to make a, you know, a career out of it or a lifetime out of it. But at the same time, it's going to change the sport because you're going to have five-year-olds who never leave the climbing gym. My positive spin on the climbing world is, Um, Let's make sure that the sponsors we bring in and the networks that we engage and the famous climbers that we have keep remembering that we've got to protect this stuff um, because there's a lot of crazy crap going on out there that's making it harder for everybody. Yeah, I'm like heavy. It's like got some things to think about today. Like all bad. <laughs> yeah, I know. We this I think this might be our darkest interview. <laughs> that we've yeah, done. for sure, for sure. Because it's it's one thing for us to sort of speculate, like, oh, I wonder what happens when climbing goes mainstream. But it's another thing to actually talk to somebody who's an expert in mainstream sports and be like, oh no, that is what happens. <laughs> like this, that sounds that sounds dark. You know, 
Rick referenced the film Jerry Maguire from 1996, which most of us know lines from, but maybe have never seen. In this film, there's a sports agent played by Tom Cruise, who works for this big, giant sports agency that's basically a machine for minting money. And one day he has this realization, um, and he decides that that they're going about their business all wrong. He writes this 25-page manifesto about how they can better do better as an institution. And basically, it comes down to agents should have real relationships with people and that profit should take a back seat to people. Right? Mind-blowing. And in it, Jerry walks into the office. Everyone is clapping, standing up after he's written this thing. And a few days later, he gets fired. And he goes out and starts his own agency. Struggles and eventually succeeds by being smart and actually caring about people. And it's a complete Hollywood story. And immediately I'm like, that is never going to happen. But it turns out that in the world of climbing business, we basically have someone who is like that. Jonathan Retzik. Jonathan was an athlete himself, but in a sport with a broken culture that he decided to leave. And for the last decade, he's represented some of the biggest names in climbing, adventure, and endurance sports. He's also the executive producer of Climbing Gold, so it was easy to get a hold of him. After the break, we find out the best way to build a healthy culture for our sport's brightest stars. Fitz, at some point, are we supposed to do one of those full disclosure, like, by the way, I'm represented by RxR. <laughs> am, I, am I supposed to have a disclaimer somewhere in here? <laughs> that would probably be the moment right now. Yeah, yeah perfect. By the way. <laughs> done. <laughs> yeah, done. Check the legal box. And I was like, by the way, I talked to Jonathan, uh, you know, three times a week for the last couple of years. <laughs> what, uh, am I one year younger than you? Uh, yeah, one or two. I mean, we've always joked that I'm, um, Alex is less talented, but more responsible older brother. <laughs> yeah, but much more responsible because, you know, for all the time that I've been managed by RxR, Jonathan is married with two kids and then like a nice garden and a successful business and a whole, whole thing going on. And I've always been living in a car by myself being like, huh, like how is he the same age, but he has so much going on. personal background, I come from, from the cycling world um, and was a member of the, the U.S. national team for a number of years um, before I uh, decided to uh, get, a real, get a real job. The years Jonathan was active in cycling were the height of the sport's PED era, performance-enhancing drugs, with Lance Armstrong writing exceptional performances and a feel-good story to bring a global spotlight to a sport that mostly sat on the outside of mainstream sports. Stunning interview with Lance Armstrong coming clean to Oprah about doping to win. I view this situation as um, one big lie. After I quit cycling in 2003, I kind of wanted to have nothing to do with, with cycling or, or sports. Um, I got interested in film and TV. And after I after I graduated, um, started my way up at the up bottom of a Hollywood talent agency um, in the New York in, the, in their New York office, and 
um, went through through the rigors, uh, you know, learning learning the trade um, through mentors and um, and and work my way up to, to where I am today. Back up. What is RxR? Uh, RxR Sports is a talent management company that focuses on providing the services to elite um, adventure and endurance athletes. Uh, so basically we take care of the kind of the business side of, of their careers so that the athletes that we represent can focus on, you know, what only they can do and what they're absolute best at. How did you two connect? I remember watching you on, on 60 Minutes in, independent of, you know, kind of having any connections to you and being blown away by the story. Then I started working with with Jimmy Chin, and I think it was at the same time that you guys were on a trip to Oman together. And I think you and Jimmy were talking, and you were like, wait, Jimmy, you have a guy that takes care of all the stuff that I don't want to do? And uh, and then Jimmy Jimmy connected us over emails, it's, and the rest, you know, it's history. That's actually shockingly similar to my version because that 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 is exactly what I remember. Is uh, I, I was on an expedition uh, on a catamaran in Oman with Jimmy, and I was like, "Wait, you have somebody that does all the things that that I'm that I not only don't like to do, but I'm really bad at doing." And uh, and then yeah, you connected us, and 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 it's been a you know wild ten years since or whatever. And so, how did you start to specialize in outdoor athletes? Yeah, sure. So. You know, at, at ICM, the, the talent agency that I worked at, you know, as a as a young uh, professional trying to move up through the ranks, you know, what, what you're trying to do is be able to identify and build relationships with, you know, emerging talent or, or great stories and, and IP. Um, and and that, you know, is, is what's going to help break you through is being able to kind of discover that next star, that next great story, the next great genre. And, um, you know, after years of kind of training my skills at that, of, you know, uh, looking for, uh, you know, the next great writer or actor going to the Juilliard showcases or seeing theater down in, in downtown New York, like, I really feel like I kind of hone my sense, my senses for good stories. And, um, found myself really kind of gravitating to a lot of outdoor media and this is you know almost 10 years ago so outdoor media was is a lot was a lot smaller than it is today and uh i think it was kind of the combination of just my personal passions uh for outdoor sports and my my background in cycling you know really connected and was like oh my god these these athletes are not only incredible athletes going to in incredible places around the world, but they're also amazing storytellers. And that's a really unique and and hard to find thing in the sports world. You know, the way things were happening in social media and just kind of more niche programming through YouTube or podcasts. For me, I just I just saw the path. Earlier, you know, Alex was joking about Jonathan representing people who were living out of vans. And it's probably worth talking about that for a moment. New York City is a very different place, both geographically and culturally, from the dirtbag destinations of Camp Four or Indian Creek. Jonathan saw something that decidingly unique and cool was happening in climbing culture, 
and in our athletes. Up until that point, climbing almost always got presented in a Hollywoodized version when it showed up in the mainstream. Like, think cliffhanger or vertical limit. Social media gave a broader slice of the world a view into what was happening in our sport without the -the over-the-top filter Hollywood loved to apply. The leading talents were not drawn into climbing by money or fame. You, You had to do it because you loved it. And that could also mean that some of the athletes Jonathan might be working with were a little raw. You know, if you've been living in a, in a van uh, in, in, you know, more or less isolation for, you know, five years, um, being able to sit in the corporate boardroom and, and pitch your project, uh, you know, can be a steep learning curve sometimes. Yeah, it's funny to hear you say that because I've actually said that to people that ask about, you know, what does it take to be a professional climber? And I'm like, well, the, the kind of soft skills matter a bit. You know, the, the things you learned in, in school actually do matter, like being able to write and just being able to keep up on your life and like keep track of things, you know, respond to emails and like take care of all the things that come your way. It's like that definitely is the sort of un, unheralded side of being a professional athlete. A hundred percent. And, you know, like as the talent base widens, in, in climbing and surf and, you know, mountain bike and running and all this stuff because of their, their newfound popularity, like you're going to have to have both skill sets. You're going to have to be world-class athlete and a world-class uh, communicator if you want to break through and have a, have a sustained career. From your perspective on the business side um, and for the athletes, you know, like the, the Olympics, are they, are they a positive? Yeah, well, I think that this is one thing that I that that climbing should try to avoid, where it becomes one of one of their sport, one of these sports where it really is an every four years kind of cycle. I think a good path for climbing is to really develop a full calendar of World Cups and World Championships and National Cups, like there's got to be more events than than just the olympics because i think it's uh it, it can be unhealthy um both for the athletes to have so much riding on on one events and then also it kind of creates these like boom and bust periods um with with sponsorships and and funding um if it's really only a four-year cycle yeah the olympic competition track is one one aspect to it but you know we also have the adventure side and that the adventure side really lends itself to you know mainstream media storytelling so it sounds like as as much hype as there was around the olympics and the and the competition elements um that from your perspective the adventurous side of our sport probably has has like more cultural juice um that the images of people doing these incredible athletic feats in incredible natural landscapes, it, it might be more powerful than a gold medal. You know, you don't have to know anything ab- about climbing to to pick up on, you know, the kind of aspirational themes or that, that you know, a man or a woman climbing the side of a mountain or standing on top of a mountain represents. And that's imagery that you know we're seeing getting picked up in mainstream advertising and media 
more and more often because it really resonates and it resonates around the world. You know, I think a big part of, of Alex's success is that, you know, he, he looks like an Olympic athlete. Um, and what he does is so visceral and beautiful to, to watch that it doesn't matter your, your background. You can, you can appreciate what, what you're watching. Most everyone we have talked to has been pretty much in agreement that relying on the institution like the Olympics to help power a sport, it's just like not a great idea on a variety of levels. Like it, it, it sort of creates this lopsided situation that's hard for athletes. But it's also interesting because like, like, you know, on the other side, coupling risk with money, that might seem like a little counterintuitive. Like that might almost seem like there'd be more potential red flags there. And I'm curious, like some of your clients are pushing the edges. Um, and I realize that they'd probably be doing that anyway, but do, but do you worry about them? Oh, yeah. I mean, when our clients are, are out on expedition um, and, and you know, in a place uh, or, or working on an objective with a high risk profile, like, yeah, it definitely keeps me keeps me up at night. Uh, I'm glad that that Alex doesn't tell me a lot of what he's going to do until until after the fact. Um, but yeah, the the, the risk taking part of it, and you know, over the last um, eight to ten years that I've been involved in this community, you know, we have seen um, a lot of a lot of death in the community, and that's that's really really hard, and I think you know raises questions for for all of us. Um, you know, I have to say that you know, a lot of the, the brands um, that are funding you know, th- these expeditions and, and projects and stuff like that um, are really experienced and um, cautious and put a lot of trust in, in the athlete. Um, and, you know, it's very rare that we have, you know, negative ex- external pressures that are, you know, putting encouraging people to take risks that they wouldn't normally take. But there was a lot of, of stunty style projects. Uh, Discovery Channel had a lot of success with, with Nick Walenda walking across the, the Grand, Grand Canyon on, on live TV. And that definitely spurred a real interest in seeing kind of these will they, won't they stunts and um you know we we, we definitely took a look I'm, I'm glad uh we we didn't we didn't go forward with them that has mostly uh faded away um and people are now interested in much more authentic and less contrived adventure stories like you're you're glad that faded away i'm like slightly disappointed i never got to uh send some of the things that i practiced you know i mean it's like, it's like and, and that's how i got to top rope some of the biggest buildings in the world but sadly i never got to climb them in their entirety you know still uh still waiting for anybody who wants to uh you know resurrect those projects But you know what I think is really, really interesting about an interesting conversation that's popped up in this this Olympics is, you know, talking about mental health and the pressure on these Olympic athletes and, you know, Simone Biles and Naomi um, 
Osaka, um, like they they are bringing to light and, and being very honest with a lot of the the pressures that that come with with being an Olympic athlete. And I think what's great about the the space that or of where climbing is right now is that it is so new. And the stakeholders that are involved in the sport right now really get to kind of write the rules of like how the sport is is structured and what the national team looks like and the culture of the of the national team. And you know, hopefully it's we're using this kind of blank slate as an opportunity to create a culture that's more compassionate and empathetic. Um, and that, you know, the sponsorship deals and stuff are incentivizing healthy behavior and not encouraging doping and all of these, you know, negative aspects that have plagued a lot of other sports. I mean, I certainly, from my cycling background, I'm certainly very, very conscious of, you know, some of the demons that really plagued that sport that it's, you know, still struggling to, to shake. Um, you know, I think climbing's in a really unique position to to create a culture uh that's much much healthier uh for the athlete how much of a role does the business play in that development of the culture i think it plays a huge role i mean you look at the situation in in track and field you know with with alice and felix um and her contract with nike and you know getting a salary salary uh, reduction for um having a baby like we don't need things like that in, in, in the contracts. We don't need to overemphasize performance incentives in, in these contracts because it just, these athletes put enough pressure on, on themselves. Look, obviously you want to, um, you know, create bonuses so that the athlete can share in the upside of, of their success, but we can't wait the entire contract on on Olympic medals or, or, or world championship medals. Um, it's gotta be more, more compassionate than that. Contract between an athlete and a brand or a creative and a brand, it, it has uh, the power to, to drive a culture. And, and I imagine you must have seen that in cycling. Yeah, no, those in, incentive structures, the way that, you know, team teams are funded, um, you know, if if you're on short contract cycles, it really creates it puts a lot of a lot of pressure on on athletes, especially as they get older and want to buy a house and they've got a mortgage payment and childcare costs. It's really important that they have uh, s- sustained kind of not unconditional, but you know, compassionate support from from their brand sponsors. Um, so they're not feeling like they need to cross that ethical line to to cheat or to um, you know develop unhealthy habits like eating disorders or, or or whatever it is. So stability in business in the contracts people sign that sets the culture. Brands like Red Bull and the North Face uh, achieve a lot of success in their sports marketing programs is because they've had really long-term views on how they work with athletes and have created really great healthy programs that allows it creates an environment for athletes to really you know do their best work and 
you know, not not have to worry that uh, their contract's going to get terminated if 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 they're injured or want to want to have a child. Um, so that that long per, long term perspective is is absolutely critical in creating creating a sport culture that's that's going to be long long lasting. Thanks, Rick and Jonathan, for chatting with us and sharing your perspective. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Fitzka Hall. Elizabeth Nakano and Andrew Burton are our senior producers. John Bergman is our producer. Music today by Brennan O'Connell and Cordelia Zars, who also did additional editing and mixing. Art direction by Anya Miller. Our executive producers are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape and Beer, and Jonathan Retzik and Matt Endy for RXR Sports. Thanks for listening. This is Climbing Gold.